episode 26 of Sounding Board. Today we've got a slight change of the format and I'm welcomed by David Cox. Hi Rob. And Amy Laurent. Hello. Who are the dream team, I'm sure you'll all agree. And instead of doing a news section, there was one item in the news section from late January, early February that's become such an elephant in the room that we decided to devote a lot of the podcast to it. And that is the recent Gramophone or Grammy Awards, which this year hit their 60th year and there's been a lot of follow-up in the press concerning who won the awards who was nominated etc and so we're going to try and sort of dive deep and and give some opinions and look at some of the background behind this and uh, David I think to start with your you've got some statistics well it's worth saying that there are about four million categories but uh, there were 19 that were televised. It's actually 84, oh, okay, which okay, is pretty bloated. Of the 19 that were televised, 18 were won by men. And it has triggered a big conversation about um, the Grammys in particular, about award shows in general, and also coming at the same time or alongside Me Too in Hollywood, does mu- is music approaching a kind of Me Too moment? And it deserves some analysis. So we're saying that 14 of the 19 categories that were televised were won by four men so Bruno Mars won five Kendrick Lamar won four Chris Stapleton who's a country singer won three and Ed Sheeran won two that's 74% one of the things that was really controversial on the night was that Lord, who was the only female artist shortlisted for best album was refused a spot to perform so she was the only shortlisted artist on the best album to not perform Whereas the Grammys, in their wisdom, found time to let Sting and U2 perform five times. Which is just, I don't know what to say, really. So I heard on another podcast, that's not even cool for white people anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, it was, it was, it was comp- the, the horror of the night was compounded by Nigel Portnow, who's like the head of the Grammys, afterwards... When he was asked about this stuff, saying that, well, kind of women needed to step up, those were his words. And they needed to use their hearts and souls, which is kind of weirdly gendered language when you're talking about having more influence over a pretty hard-nosed industry. The whole thing was a catastrophe. Yes, yes. And Bruno Mars won Best Album, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Bruno won the big three, so the big main cross-genre categories of uh, Album of the Year... Song of the Year, no, uh, Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Mm-hmm. So Song is, I think, song, songwriter, a songwriter award and Record is more performance. All three were won by Bruno Mars. And there's been a bit of Bruno Mars backlash because you could, the, the question is, like, is Bruno Mars, is, 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 the, is the Bruno Mars sound the most forward-thinking and the most definitive sound of, 28, of music in 2018? It really isn't, you know, it harks back to, you know, nineteen early 90s and late 80s funk music, which is fine. And he's a very likeable pop star and he's he's great fun to watch. It's always a delight to watch him perform. Mm. But yes, you know, we're now four years in when either Beyonce or Kendrick Lamar have released game-changing albums, huge, huge game-changing albums, and four years in a row when they have been shut out. And that is really significant, I think. It says a lot about the way that the, the Grammys and the music industry reward African-American artists. They don't very well. No, no. And I understand one of the performances that achieved a bit of coverage was Kesha's rendition of Praying. Did yeah, everybody yeah. catch that? Well, it's, it's problematic in as much as Dr Luke, who may or may not be a qualified GP, um, <laughs> who has been Jury's accused... Out. 
He's been accused. He has a, it's alleged, isn't it? It's, it's still alleged. Yeah, it's alleged that he, he sexually assaulted Kesha. Yeah. Makes money out of her performance. Yeah. You know, every time she performs those songs, he makes money. Mm-hmm. And she was not allowed to speak about the case because it's ongoing. So she's basically rendered mute by the process, which made the end of that song in which many of the artists who performed alongside her hugging her and mm. reduced to tears, very moving but very troubling, I thought. Too. It really came through in her performance as well, which felt, unlike the recording, which was sort of substituted very polished, but her live performance was very raw. She was looking very intently into the camera and it felt really like she was she was reckoning with the industry and reckoning directly with Dr Luke and that, that was really the only way that she could do it mm. was through her performance. Yeah, it was it was really sad to watch and other people have said this as well, but I just think it's a little bit unfortunate and strange that... They, they didn't really, the, the, the music industry, the discussion, so the way the music industry is confronting gender issues, you know, and problems with its industry is, is, is not as visible and maybe not as far ahead as it is in Hollywood. Mm. Not to say Hollywood's dealing with it very well, but the way that it's presented and that they're making more, there's, there's more lip service in Hollywood than there is in the music industry. And it did feel a little bit like they just wanted to compress all the women's stuff into this one five-minute performance. All of the women up stage, on stage together, all supporting each other, and, okay, one and done, and now we can all move on. And there was, like, a... It looked... there was It was very clear, just days days before the um, the actual event, it was clear that there wasn't going to be a Me Too movement. So, so I think some just middle management executives got together and, and uh, collaborated and formed this sort of White Rose movement. A lot of, you know, there was a White Rose on Elton John's piano when he was performing. A lot of the artists were holding White Roses. And so something came together. It was all sort of a bit makeshift and a bit last minute. So um, I think, yeah, the music industry's got a long way to go. Yes, and I think there's a really interesting article in The Guardian that Laura Snape's wrote, which I think sort of nailed a lot of this, didn't it, in terms of what was wrong, letting down generally of black and female artists Mm, and hip-hop in general as well. But, like, it's worth saying that none of this should take us any by surprise. So we've got statistics coming out of our ears here, but I had a look from the Grammys website at the top 22 artists who have won 18 or more Grammys in their careers. Of those 22, three are women. Yeah, mm. uh, and when you add up how many they've won, so for example, Georg Salty, who's a conductor, who's number one here with thirty-one Grammys. Once you add up all the men wins and the and the women wins, there are sixty-seven Grammys won by those three artists. Who are, for your information, Alison Krauss, <laughs> exactly, Beyonce and Aretha Franklin. They've won sixty-seven Grammys between them. There are four hundred and sixteen for men. So right. 16% of the Grammys went to women. This is not a surprise. No. 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 Bjorn Salty and Knight of the Realm, I understand, which uh, I, I, I think I might have read that. Oh, really? So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good on him. <laughs> so, yeah. there's, a, there's a few other Knights of the Realm. all is forgiven. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah <laughs> Mac and McCartney's in there. Um, but, but it is interesting that only female artists have won. There were no engineers, producers, composers, conductors. No, that's, that's telling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's borne out by this report I found, I sent over to you, Amy, from the USC, which was published last month called Inclusion in the Recording Studio. And it had some really interesting stuff. So basically this report was written uh, about 600 songs that featured on the Hot 100 billboard in the US between 2012 and 2017. The stats are pretty startling. So of the top eight males 
All of them are producers. The top eight females, seven are performers. 12.3% of those 600 songs were written by women. The male-to-female producer ratio is 49 to 1, or 2%. And only two out of those 651 producers were women of colour. 9.3% of all Grammy nominees between 2013 and 18 were female. And it's just... Mm. It's stunning. Yeah. It's yeah, stunning. it is. I think the best chance you have of winning a, a Grammy is if you happen to be nominated in the Best Newcomer category. That's um, right, yeah. Yeah, because so, the, the industry likes sort of young, sort of pliable, ingenue, yeah. female artists, yeah. which is, you know... Yeah, which I can return to in a bit. But, I mean, I think just looking at some of the other categories as well, I mean, I noticed that Kraftwerk won Best Electronic Album for 3D The Catalogue, which is essentially a live album, which seems astonishing. Uh, much as I'm a, a big Kraftwerk fan. Chris Cornell and Leonard Cohen were nominating Best Live Performance. I mean, obviously there might be ulterior sort of suggestions behind that, given both passed on last year. But but still, it, it seems as if has nothing happened since the arse end of grunge, basically. And just to bear that out, Foo Fighters were nominated in Best Rock Album. I and mean, even within rock, there's so much <laughs> more that's interesting mm-hmm. that happened last year. And yeah, I mean, it is woeful, but... I mean, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but what, what, just to play devil's advocate for a second, are they not as bad as they were? So, for instance, SZA was nominated for five awards. Other album nominees were Kendrick Lamar, Lord, and Childish Gambino, all of which I think we endorse. Yes. Jay-Z, although there could be a danger that Kanye West and Jay-Z will be hobbling on to receive awards with walking sticks 20 years from now. I mean, I wouldn't say it was Jay-Z's best work from last year, but mm-hmm. if you compare that to 91, you know, the year of Nirvana's Nevermind, when Phil Collins, but seriously, MC Hammer and Wilson Phillips were all nominated. So haven't they always been rubbish? Yeah. Aren't they, are they an irrelevance? They had, they, the Grammys, is, it's, it's a huge, huge platform and a great way to publicise music so you couldn't ever say that it was irrelevant is is does it represent what's best about how valuable is it does it how seriously should you take it how how well does it represent what's best about music not at all really very badly but those are two separate issues I think and yes I mean yes it's true but it does I think I think that over the last few years and people have always the Grammys have always been kind of a joke let's be honest but I think that since they've been making more of an effort to engulf and to engage in cultural conversation, I think that there's been some expectation that maybe things are going to get better more quickly than they have done. And this year was the first year, maybe ever, that no white man was nominated for Album of the Year. And that's a huge deal. And Ed Sheeran could quite easily have been in those categories if the, you know, the steering committee hadn't maybe allegedly excluded him from those categories. And he could potentially have swept them. But he wasn't in there. And that felt like it was a big step forward. But then, of course, then once you once you send those nominations out to the Grammy voters, you know, <laughs> all those progressive choices get shot down, and you you go with the most traditional, most backward-looking option on the menu, which this year happened to be Bruno Mars. No, not dissing Bruno Mars. I'm not reading him. He's very enjoyable, but he he does he represents you know 1992, not 2018. So on that point. The steering committee, can anybody shed any light on who's on it, who votes, so, and the, the Grammy members? I mean, because the suspicion is that, you know, people who at one time were maybe in their 20s and 30s and now in their 60s or 70s, and they're a bit like myself, you know, <laughs> possibly no longer qualified to talk about young people's 
sort of pursuits. I mean, I mean, what is the? There's clearly something wrong there, isn't there, with who's getting votes, who, who, who who's deciding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's very complicated. Partly because it's shrouded in secrecy, secrecy, and partly because it's always changing. But they have said that they do that. There is a committee that monitors nominations as they come in and guides that process a little bit a little bit to kind of avoid acute embarrassment or maybe to boost ratings so they have admitted even though it's not on the way anywhere on the website they have admitted that they do this when it comes to who actually votes you know who actually does the voting it's the grammy members are like i think they're mostly sound engineers and producers and songwriters and often you know they're not terribly high profile often they are very experienced read older sort of you know, many, many credits, but they value traditional songwriting, they value the, you know, they value act- the, the skilled use of actual musical instruments. That muso type thing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, are, they, are, they, they are traditionalists. They are traditionalists. And I think a couple of years ago, they, they changed the weighting a little bit more in favour of maybe younger voters and less so for older voters, but there's still that kind of that that critical mass is still in favour of the more old fashioned and so that's why you'll end up with, you know, last year Adele beating beating Beyonce and Adele Adele herself seemed mortified on stage and she was accepting the awards so much so that she apologized she all but apologized to Beyonce and cried. Mm. But that's the kind of that's they like a big voice, they like they like schmaltiness, they like classic kind of, you know, verse chorus, verse chorus song structure. They like real instruments. And am I right in the early days, and I looked at some of the winners from the early days, and Sinatra was pretty dominant. Nothing against Sinatra, a tremendous artist, obviously, but, you know, this is at the time when, you know, Elvis was, you know... Chuck Berry and, you know... Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the Beatles did win and get nominated to an extent, but... but Yeah, I think they didn't win until Sgt Pepper in 68. That's right. Revolver was nominated, I think, the year Mm. before. And... Yeah, I mean, so, so there's always been this tradition. I mean, I've also, the other thing I noticed was that the likes of Eric Clapton and and Bob Dylan won years after their best work, literally years after their best work, you know, 20, 25 years later. Yeah, yeah, um, that, you see that pattern over and over again. As they'll, rec- they'll, they'll recognise your contribution to music, but it'll take them 20 years to do it. Yeah, yeah, so that's why I was saying, I think, I can see Kanye and Jay-Z cleaning up 20 yeah. years from now. Yeah, <laughs> that, that case, all, the, all the kids will be like, Oh, Kanye West. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I was just on Elvis actually because we recorded an Elvis podcast last year, which I do urge you all to listen to because it was very enjoyable recording it. I mean, was he nominated or did he win at all in any category? I'm sure he did. I don't know yeah. for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think he would have suffered the same thing, which is that, he, especially in his heyday, which is what fifty six to. Yeah. 60. Which is a bit before the Grammys, really, isn't yeah. it? I think. Yeah, and also yeah. he just represented some sort of insurgency. I don't think those guys would have liked it. And I do use guys as, as a gendered term, because yeah. I think that that if, if 9.3% of all Grammy nominees are women, I would suggest that 90% of the steering committee are men. Mm. Mm. And I mean, I don't like judging people on how they look, but if anybody wants to search for Neil Portnow he just looks like the epitome of a kind of smashy and nicey type kind of ageing record executive it really does (laughs) this is my objection to it to Amy's point they ran they did a horrible calculated thing by trying to co-opt Me Too by doing the White Roses very last minute activism is hard and it takes a lot of organisation and sweat and um, 
and perseverance and they didn't really pull it together did they but they tried to co-opt it they gave Kesha the performance but they but I think by doing something they invite this level of scrutiny they mm. might as well have done nothing I, th- I thought it was shameful actually what they did in trying to co-opt Black Lives Matter in the past in Me Too this year mm. and they're cack-handedly hopping onto zeitgeisty things chasing ratings but this is really this is really important yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of Effie Aluko, the England women's football team player who, who criticised the campaign as being just a hashtag on Twitter. I think we have to possibly get beyond the hashtags now, don't we? And, and think about things that have more meaningful... She never played for England again? No, no. Well, yet. But yes, yes, I know. Gumbags. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing about the, the voting I did notice in my research was that you have to submit something to be considered or you have to put yourself forward or your record company does so the likes of Drake and Frank Ocean both male of course didn't Mm. and I think that's quite significant isn't it I mean if more people were not to do that then it would really lose credibility Drake in this inclusion in the recording studio report so these 600 songs between 2012-2017 is the most prolific artist most counted artist Mm. in that top 600 Mm. so him saying forget it I'm not interested is a really interesting but very powerful precedent because he himself could have swept the board, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Him yeah. and Despacito should have won the lot. Mm. Despacito should have been Song of the Year. It's a travesty that it wasn't. Well, yeah. Me and Amy had a ding dong about Best Song because when Mars went up to accept his award, and for the record, I have nothing against Mars, right? I think he's cool. Yeah, he's cool. Uh, it, it's not his fault that he was nominated and won. But when he went up, he was accompanied by his nine songwriters. I think that's nuts. But then Amy was saying that that's a rockist attitude and I should get over myself. Yeah. Yeah. But I just feel that best song written by committee sounds like it was written by committee too. Does it though? Does it sound like it was written by committee? No, I just think it's unbelievably derivative. Yes, it's derivative. Okay. No way as good as loyalty. Kendrick Lamar feet. It's less it's less original and I and I agree that it's less worthy than than Kendrick Lamar, but I don't know. I mean, I I think like when you, when you think about when you think about Bruno Mars, he is not he's not a white artist. He he's not a black artist, but he he understand he understands a kind of minority point of view to an extent that I don't think he's always getting the credit for at the moment. He's like a was he Jewish Polynesian Filipino, and he is engaging with an African American canon and bringing that into the mainstream in a way that I think is relatively interesting actually and probably valuable and no you know it's not going to no the, the Grammys aren't going to award are going to award originality like they're going to award something that's backward looking that they understand better but it's certainly you know they've the Grammys have never awarded originality very well and you know it and, and isn't a reassessment of what is and isn't canon and bringing old retro hip-hop into the canon is that not something I have no problem with it being fucking Polynesian. I have a problem with there being nine songwriters on a song that wins Best Song of the Year. I don't think that... That is completely irrelevant to me. It completely doesn't matter. When you, do you think, think about like songwriting teams like Xenomania, for behind Girls Aloud, artists like Girls Aloud, best, the last great girl group, Girls Aloud. Xenomania, how many were there on that panel? More than nine. Well, it's, it's a bit like one of those scientific papers you get in academic journals where there are kind of nine people, including the guy who was holding the test tube. You know? <laughs> <laughs> actually, that in itself sometimes contains really interesting distortions. For example, a lot of more junior female academics are encouraged to put male academics as co-authors in order to get published. Yeah, <gasps> yeah. that's how it comes about. Yeah. 
Um, so, so about the categories, and you know, a few that struck me as being perhaps not worthy of inclusion, like best comedy album, and then the difference between best urban contemporary album and the best hip hop album seemed to be like a, a little bit of a grey area for me. The fact there were eighty four awards, which you mentioned at the start, but in the past. There have been separate awards for male and female. I mean, any thoughts on that and whether they should go back to having the reinstatement of the separate awards? Well, I thought this was good. And we actually did this in another podcast. Yeah, we and did. A- and Amy, to her credit, at the time said, well, let's see how it actually goes. And, I, and Cheryl Crow, of all people, said we should start having a look at reinstating that. Because if, if on average, one in ten artists being shortlisted are female... They probably we probably need to intervene in a bit of a, in a way that laissez-faire economics doesn't work. You need to regulate markets. Would at least guarantee a certain number of awards being awarded to women, and also you know you'd have it like I think maybe you you then need to have maybe more awards being given out on stage and fewer performances, which sounds on paper like it would be more boring, but actually with the number of turgid ballads that are on the actual live show, actually probably would be better to have. Have you know maybe some more voices and? Yeah, I think we could do with less sting and shaggy, you know. So uh... sting and shaggy. I mean, what? Yeah. what? The, the living <laughs> hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they performed what twice? Twice they were on stage twice. I think maybe they get they 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 presented an award and they performed. I don't even know what's going on. I mean, I I, I have a slight object, not a slight. I have a significant objection to things like urban. I think it's bordering on the racist. Mm. What does that? What does urban mean? No, what are yeah. you actually saying by the word urban in this context? Non-countryside yeah. alliance. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like these people have never baited a badger. I mean, they I mean, kind of they kind of invented that category for Beyonce, so that she at least wants something, right? Well, maybe it's when people like Eric Clapton and George Harrison started living in country mansions, you know, so yeah. just to differentiate maybe. it from them. I don't like it. I don't. I don't like all. The, I mean, eighty-four is such a symptom of something else which is broken here. Yeah. And I don't like the idea that you have to ghettoise music, and I just don't think it really reflects how people are consuming music anymore, particularly. Or, or the way that, that genres sort of bleed into each other That's and right, morph. Yeah. I mean, we I were just talking about post-genre, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But it, but you know, but if we but if we if we did that with the genres, then we might see exactly the same pattern that we've seen with you know just conflating the the the, genre, the gender categories together. Might then, Amy, let's just get rid of the Grammys. Yeah. Really, honestly, they could go. I mean, they really what, could. Who gives a shit? Yeah. On which point, just comparison to other awards, I mean, obviously the, the natural comparisons with the Brits, which seems to be pretty similar to the Grammys in its irrelevance most Sweet of the time. Is, I mean, does anyone care? <laughs> no. I mean, I, we grew up during the fucking golden age of the Brits, didn't we? Jarvis Cocker versus Michael Jackson. Exactly. Yeah. And like Liam getting up there absolutely pissed, calling out Blur for a fight yeah. outside. I mean, that was fantastic. Yeah. That was a bit... Like, it was Jerry's... Uh, Union Jack dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was there were a lot of legendary Mate. moments, but they were all in. The, they were all in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, they were all in the nineties. Yeah. Really, it was like a, it was like a short golden period. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Annie <laughs> Lennox won Best Female Act even when she hadn't released a record. I think. Yeah, that really became emotions. that became a long-standing joke, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, uh, on this list of the top Grammy winners, the U 2s got twenty-two. Their yeah. last win was in two thousand and fifteen for Best Album for How to Dis. Yeah. Like assembling and top and yeah. That's right. Like, yeah. Who the fuck has ever listened to that album? Yeah. Who owns that album? Who could name a single song off that album? Well, there's so many on the list. I mean, I mentioned earlier on Phil Collins's, but seriously, and then various Dylan and Clapton albums that are just mm. forgotten. 
and and you just think that, that's the thing. It's like almost thinking, oh well, a bit like when Ian McEwan won the Booker Prize for Amsterdam, they almost thought, oh well, we overlooked him for the books that should have won it, and so we're going to give him it for something that was a novella and not that interesting mm -hmm. and I think it's the same with this they kind of missed the big albums and thought we better retrospectively allow this person some credit and it's you know yeah that's that's that is it's all retrospective even even the uh, even the even the kind of the, not the, the the blocks that they in which they judge nominations. I mean, we were just having a discussion the other day, like why isn't Taylor Swift nominated this year because she released an album last October, which already feels like it's not part of the conversation. But it's not even it's not going to even be eligible for awards until next year's show. Mm -hmm. So you know, why are we living in the past? So anything more to add? I think I'll add my say. Yeah. I, yeah. would, I, I wouldn't get rid of it altogether is the only thing that I would say because sometimes I quite like watching the performances yeah um, and we haven't you know it is a platform and yeah. we don't have Top of the Pops anymore so and it something. makes quite a big difference <laughs> for record sales and, and the rest of it doesn't it so yeah, yeah. it's an important industry event so. then can we get Amy to do it next year yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one wants that <laughs> I do <laughs> let's Let's try and get a hashtag out like that. And if you're looking for awards that really matter, then you need to listen to our December podcast where we went through our top 10 albums of the year, which I think we did present fairly well a spectrum of music, I think, and, and, and gender in that Bruno enjoyed. Mars was never mentioned once. No, he didn't even make the top 50, sadly. And, um, you know, I was trying to reassure him on the phone just now. <laughs> we shall see. Anyway, that's the, new, the slightly elongated news section. For, for this week and, and, and another thing about today, this February 2018 podcast is that we're, we're not going to have an album of the month this month there have been one or two really interesting ones out including the Hookworms album which I've been very impressed with and the album by Shane which Ben mentioned on the podcast last week and actually I think I've decided borrowing one or two tracks I actually actively don't like but anyway more of that on other, other podcasts hot take um, we're, we're going to have a, a very quick discussion now which came up just as an aside to some of what we've been doing over the last couple of years, which is about music and podcasting, which I know sounds a bit meta, but one of the reasons why we started the podcast was that myself, Ben Warhead and Neil Kennedy, when we started the podcast, we were a little bit dissatisfied with what was already out there, and probably that's because we just hadn't come across stuff, but it does strike me that in the intervening two years, more decent ones have emerged... And, Are um, they all American, though? Yeah, I think that question. is a point, I isn't it? I mean, no back in the day there, Neil and I used to listen to the the Guardian Music Weekly with oh, Alexis yeah. Petridis, which was very, very good, actually. And yeah, that, that went anymore. for three or four years. And I think they were supposed to be swapping it in for like a sort of video-based thing, but I don't think they ever saw the light of day. And, I mean, that was a very enjoyable one. And, and I have to say, we sort of unashamedly borrow some of the stylings of that podcast for this podcast. But... First of all, podcasts generally. I mean, we're all podcast fans, and of course it's natural for us to say that given that we're on a podcast here. But what the main advantages of the medium are quite well chronicled, aren't they? But for you, why, why are podcasts such a big thing for you? I know, David, you said at the end of the year it was, it was one of the main ways you consume media now. Yeah. yeah, I suppose I love radio, and so this is just a kind of evolution of that. I can download them onto my device and then listen to it while I'm doing things like walking or cleaning the bathroom and there are because so, it, it's an emerging so I, I think it's still in co as a as a genre as a, as a sort of medium so at the moment it's going in really interesting directions because no one's really nailed down what a good podcast is I don't think so you have to kiss a few frogs so certainly Amy and I exchange a lot of recommendations 
And some things we listen to and they're complete garbage. Some of them are like guilty pleasures, like that Dirty John. Oh, yeah. And some of them are just absolutely sublime and mind-blowing, such as S-Town. And so, at the moment, I feel like I'm actually... It's a bit like being around in the time of Henry Fielding or Daniel Defoe. Like, you're actually seeing something emerge, and that's exciting. Mm. I love that analogy. I, I, I worry that that means that in time, the ones that will rise to the top will be the ones that are quite slick and quite well produced and, and actually have paid the rights to have music on them and, and all the rest of it. And, and it will mean that established media will win and the sort of homegrown stuff like our own will, will possibly fade into the background. No, there are some success stories of, um, of independent podcasts that do well and then the ones that do well tend to you know, they, they tend to snowball in terms of their listenership and then they get their own sponsors. And so, you know, that although that takes some time. I know. I mean, I, I'm a podcast addict and, and it really is like it. I think it's, I love, I, I, I love a, a true crime podcast like, you know, um, Dirty Jean and, and all that. And I like a lot of different types of podcasts, but I really, really like culture podcasts and that includes music podcasts because it is such, it's so great for discovery with music podcasts specifically if they if they can afford the rights to play snippets of the songs you can hear that you can either i think it like it represents like a nice middle ground so on one side you've got written music criticism which can kind of be sort of stultifyingly sort of overwritten and pretentious and very theoretical because you can't you can't hear any of the stuff and on the other side you've got you know new music playlists on some kind of you know streaming platform like Spotify which is completely context free and which kind of just washes over you passively while you're doing the dishes or whatever you don't really learn anything so and but in the podcast it sits sort of in the middle where you can hear just enough of the song to decide whether or not you want to hear more of it and you also get a little bit of conversation around it why the critics think think it's important, maybe a little bit about the scene that they grew up from, and that's really important for me. I, I that's 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 how uh, that is how I retain the information the best. I found I will retain the information if I can hear something, and and I can hear intelligent people discussing it in a way that is a little bit looser than you'd see in writing. So if you're reading Pitchfork, you just think, oh, shut up. <laughs> But so those same people just having a casual conversation about it is much, much better, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the advantages for me, certainly as a podcaster, but also as a listener, is that you're, you're more forgiving about a, a maybe a lack of research when people are just chewing the fat. It's like you're down the pub, you'd be saying, I can't remember the name of that Bob Dylan or that that Bruno Mars album, but you know the one I mean. Whereas if you were writing a blog post, you'd have to get that right. You'd, look, you'd have to look it up and and say it and and, and I think yeah. that's the, the informality of it is just a lovely thing I think I mean I I do really appreciate that I mean so quickly on on music podcasts any anything that you particularly like well how long have you got well <laughs> maybe just a couple if you could pick out okay good. Yeah. so a few of my a, f- a few of my a few of my favorites at the moment my new favorite is the New York Times podcast which is um you know which is is published by a traditional media outlet um, so yeah, it's from, yeah. from that kind of you know that kind of sort of establishment, and so it's John Caramanica who is the chief New York Times music critic, and he's got a, a panel of critics and music reporters. They're all sort of industry insiders, so they often know a lot of the A and R machinations behind a lot of the product that ends up in front of us. That's always really fascinating, and often they've interviewed the artists that they're talking about as well, so they have a lot of insights that most people don't have. 
and it's a little bit like being a fly on the wall at a pitch meeting which is really cool it's very interesting if you're interested in the music business as well as the actual music itself so it's kind of it is it does have populist leanings the name would suggest so it's kind of there's not very much boys with guitars music on it okay it's not very it's not very it's, it's kind of anti-rockist mm. But it's not wall-to-wall pop criticism either. There's an awful lot of hip-hop coverage on it. Uh, for example, they have the occasional jazz episode, which I skip. And they even try and engage with music that perhaps, you know, isn't to their taste. So, you know, there's like a, a, a whole episode dedicated to you too. Why? So I really, really enjoy it. It's, it they're hugely well-informed, interesting. It's also very relaxed, and I just learn a lot from it. Then there's All Songs Considered, which is a very well-known NPR radio show that's been around forever that's a great way to cycle through discovery really quickly because they play maybe 30 seconds of a song talk about it for two, talk about it for two minutes tell you why they think it's good then they'll move on so it's not very in depth but you do hear a lot of lesser known more obscure stuff from it Rolling Stone music now is better than you might think right they do have a lot of episodes about kind of the old sort of you know, rock and roll greats, but mm. then when they do engage with current music, actually the tastes on the panel are more diverse than you'd expect. And I really like Switched On Pop as well, with two guys, a musicologist um, and a songwriter, and they examine uh, sort of what usually it's one single song that happens to be in the charts and they explain what might be going on musically. So sometimes those kind of big, dumb pop songs that you hear on the radio are kind of more thoughtfully put together than you'd expect, and they these guys, I think they're at their best when they highlight something about a song, sonically speaking, that ties in well with the lyrical content. You might not have noticed it, but it works really well. So I like that one. Okay, I mean, those are good tips. I and mean, I've listened to all songs considered quite a bit, and there are a few things like Hamilton soundtrack, actually, um, that came to my attention oh, like yeah. that. I do find it quite, in contrary to the first one you mentioned, I do find it fairly traditionalist in the main, as is Sound Opinions, which is a yeah. Chicago-based one. Well, they are both they are both radio shows primarily, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're quite so. reverent towards the rock gods, you know, to bring they us are. back to the uh, to the previous thing. But of course, do you know, sort of nod to the current thing, and they're ever affable and pleasant people. I mean. David, I mean, you, you mainly, I think, draw your, your listening from outside music. Are there any particular podcasts where you feel the formats are particularly good and the way they're organised that maybe music podcasts could, could learn from? I would say that Amy turned me on to one music podcast which I do listen to, which is Slate's Hit Parade. Right. So it's kind of, it's presented by this guy called Chris Milan for you. I write in Slate magazine or um, a column called How Did This Become Song Become Number One, I think. It's a very kind of spotty geeky end of things like he's reading from a script this is the opposite of a spontaneous but unbelievably intricate in his arguments and it reflects another of my favourite podcasts which is a film podcast called You Must Remember This Katrina Longworth who, mm, who is so among, amongst other things her boyfriend is Rianne Johnson who just um, directed Star Wars and you can feel her in that film although maybe I'm looking for it because I'm such a big fan of hers but her arguments are unbelievably intricate and quite demanding and often across multiple episodes like her series of podcasts on the blacklist and McCarthyism in, in Hollywood is pretty that's strong stuff quite mm-hmm. tricky you have to have your wits about you at all times but what's great about um, Hit Parade is that not only is he constructing complex and intricate arguments, which are a novel, kind of, or, or usually social perspective on something. So, for example, he charts, he charts the rise of Napster and Spotify 
via You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer all the way back to Rubber Soul by The Beatles. And he strings that argument together and it's perfection. But where possible, he uses music. And it's just so good. So when he does an episode on Red Red Wine, you hear both Neil Diamond's original, then UB40's version, and then Neil Diamond performing Red Red Wine now in the style of UB40, which is to be heard to be believed. God, I love that episode. As he toasts over... Uh, a kind of reggae version of his own song. Oh, really? To create its own yeah. Song. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So, I'm much more of I'm more inclined towards the less spontaneous. I've got to say, I love Hidden Brain. Hmm. I love This American Life. I love. I think probably the masterpiece of the genre beyond Serial and S Town is Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. Hmm. I like someone who's fucking clever, much cleverer than me, and much more well informed than me, telling me something I didn't know. In a way, I didn't expect. So the kind of audiobook style single interlocutor. Yeah, thing. that's why I find football podcasts really difficult because they're yeah. bantalicious. Yeah, and they're also they are a hot take, aren't they? They're like, oh, did you see Sanchez fell over? Kind of thing, like yeah. which is boring to me. A lot of them are anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And like no offense to those people, but they're boring. Mm. And then the music ones, yeah. If I, I would prefer them to be really, like I say, it's, it's my preference, spotty, geeky. I prefer a kind of modicum of research. I mean, I think just watching the telly and then reacting to it like a kind of goggle box for, for, for podcasts doesn't work. So as you say, look, watching the Premier League fixtures over the weekend or even the Grammys and, and just saying, oh, what about that bit? Wasn't that rubbish or whatever? doesn't really wash it. You do want a little bit of background, I think. So, so I think, although I would say I do strongly prefer ones where there's more than one person in the room. I, I, I'm not, I've never, I've always struggled a bit. I think my attention span is just shot to pieces. That's so I think like the, 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 the one person thing, unless it's quite short. But I really me. like the discursiveness of a round table, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's that's my that's my preference. I really I love Chris Malanfi and I really love that podcast. And when those when those scripted episodes are put together well, they can be really compelling and amazing. But I don't know. It just it's nice. You, you can put. It's just nice to be in the company of people who are passionate about something in culture and they want to let you know about it. You learn, but also you feel a little bit like you know you're cooking. You've got a podcast on. Maybe you know. You're making dinner for your like your interesting cultural friends. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, for me, the the, the advantage of the the genre is that I just can just listen to it at any time. I know that's the obvious thing, but I mean, I just am never in the same place at the same time each week. So a, a radio show or a TV show is always quite tough to follow. And of course, mm. you can record and do playback, particularly on television. But just the podcasting, the flexibility of it is just fantastic really absolutely yeah. love it so one, one other question just in terms of the business of it is most of the podcasts I listen to anyway and I'm pretty sure probably a good 99% of them overall even if they're produced by mainstream media are free to download from iTunes and other places is it possible or, or desirable to make money out of podcasting yeah, but I think people, creative people deserve to be rewarded for the fruits of their labour it's the internet. I think you wrote a piece on your football blog about this, right? Yeah, on Two Unfortunates, which is called The Current State of Football Podcasting, which uh, did get quite a lot of readers, which I was pleased about, but just looking at various methods of monetizing. Yeah, it's a good, it was a really interesting piece. I was glad to read it. But ultimately, the conclusion is well, it's the internet. Like the cat's sort of out of the bag, isn't it? Yeah. You do not expect really to buy stuff on the internet. 
And if there are free alter- it's a bit like gun control in the US. The only way it could work is if everyone handed in all their guns at exactly the same time, because the the person left with the last gun is now president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, like, this is paywalls in uh, newspapers as well. Like, the whole thing is tricky, especially in the UK with the BBC being free because of the license fee, free in inverted commas, I suppose. It means that uh, sources such as The Guardian would really f- have a catastrophic falling off of users because there's that quality alternative, which is always going to be for free. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It seems like the quality alternatives will always sort of step up to the plate once the other stuff goes behind the paywall. And maybe the only exceptions are the authoritative nature of, you know, the FT and the economists where, and where people are checking share prices and really need that information. Yeah, yeah. yeah specialist mm-hmm. stuff. I don't, I don't need Chris Malamphy in my life and I would not pay for his podcast, however much I love it. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't to say that you shouldn't give us some money, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think one of, one of the models is is having two layers of content, so a kind of premium layer where you maybe pay or get get something from sort of Patreon or one of those crowdfunding yeah, kind Slate's of things. Yeah, that's Slate's model, isn't it? Because they have yeah. Slate, you know, if you subscribe to Slate Plus, which I think is $50 a year or something, then you get an extra bit at the end of the main podcasts. Hmm. Um, so that's one way of monetizing it and of course they have sponsors as well and then there are other broadcasters um, like the Maximum Fund which is a comedy broadcaster of, of podcasts and they are at least partly monetized by donations and then yeah you've got kind of the big you've got the, the, the big guns the, the podcast versions of um, more traditional media outlets and then of course they've got the traditional media outlets to keep the lights on um, but I think they often have sponsors too yeah, yeah. I mean, the sponsors are very, very common now, aren't they? And particularly in football podcasting, betting companies, unsurprisingly, are really prominent in that. And I think they're perhaps the only yeah. companies that are willing to come up with there's, there's like the amounts like a, of money. There's like a handful of them that just appear on every podcast going. It's like Squarespace, a couple of mattress companies. Mattress companies, Harry's yes. Razors, Blue Apron. Blue Apron. I mean, yeah. interestingly, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of help landlords make sure they get their rent that crops up on some of the Guardian podcasts which just mm. seems extraordinary to me have you ever followed up on any of those things have you ever typed in 10 into some sort of no I was quite interested in the, on one of the podcasts that we're giving a free plug here to stamps.com because I wondered how that works I don't think we have a similar thing here in the UK oh yeah to get oh, out yeah. of the post office yeah mm. yeah. which of course is another thing that closes down the high street so probably not to be encouraged but I don't think they have that over here no no, no. have you ever bought a podcast paid for one no I am a Slate Plus subscriber though oh right okay I think if it was a really specialist interest thing that like the football team I support and it was really, really top quality, I would probably consider it, because I assume it wouldn't be like a huge amount of money. It would be maybe a year subscription, in the same way that you'd pay for a subscription for a magazine. There's such a big part of my life now that if there was no... If I could not hear the podcasts that I look forward to every week, if they removed that from me and put it behind a paywall, I would pay for it. Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I wonder what the percentage of people would be. Yeah. You know, I don't know. When you, when you think about how a lot of these podcasts are already servicing quite niche interests already like how many people like a lot of people will, will casually listen to taylor swift but who will listen to an hour and 15 minutes of people reviewing the latest album i don't know how many people but i'm in i'm in for it but i don't know yeah it's like not yeah. that you know 
your next economics commissioning editor, how is this, how is this going to work? What do you think the future of it is as a business model? I don't know. I think it will... I, I, I can see the really premium content like becoming more and more behind a paywall because I think people will probably think, oh, well, we're debating about whether to carry on doing it or not. Maybe that's the point when people think, oh, we'll, we'll have a go at charging for it when you're thinking, oh, shall we stop doing it? Which probably isn't the most healthy time to do that. But I, I think that the premium rate content, I think it, once stuff becomes so essential, so things like This American Life or... Um, that's NPR. That, that's a bit like the BBC. I guess it is, but if that were, the people would pay for that. I'm pretty sure yeah. they would. You know, not in the numbers that are listening to it at the moment, but maybe if a tenth did, then that's still like a really serious amount of money. But maybe micro payments, although they've been a bit discredited, haven't they? I think. Yeah. Yeah. One tactic that you, you you must have seen across your podcast listening is the idea of like a live show, because then you can charge a cover. You might even get some percentage at the bar. And then you can sell merch and stuff. But I've never heard a single one of those that I've liked. And funny enough, Chris mm. Malanfi just did one recently and it was toe-curlingly awful. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. 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 It was awful. You get a lot of people whooping in the background, don't you? It's just, kind of thing. Yeah. it's just grim. You know, beyond watching Partridge on Mid-Morning Matters, I don't think radio makes good telly or theatre. No, no. A couple of the football ones aren't too bad. The Blizzard, actually, which is very august football magazine they they have a, a round table which is is very good but it only happens they only do it like once every few months but but yeah no, maybe that's the way forward but as you say the internet the cat was out of the bag we all were given this thing for free to start with and although there are certain things that people were managed to still charge for on it it's, it's for the most part we're getting it all for free aren't we given that we've discussed at some length now how difficult it is to monetize podcasts because there is an expectation that they are available for free. Why are so many media outlets starting them? Do you think? Well, I don't know. It's a good question. What do you think? It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe there is more money in it than we think. Maybe those, maybe those that that sweet, sweet sponsor money is more of a pull than we realise. Or maybe they're trying to get it in on what you what that point that you made earlier about this being an inchoate form, and it's still you know it's still getting off the ground. Maybe they don't want to be left behind. I don't know. I think two reasons for me. One, barriers for entry are really low. All you need is a laptop and a microphone mm-hmm. and, and a room. And it's pretty easy. And in fact, a lot of people record mm-hmm. them in the pub and things like that. Personally, I'm not so keen on that as a listener. But, but people generally are quite forgiving about sound quality. They don't necessarily need it to be really I think that's really true for indie, indie podcasts like yeah. us. Yeah. For someone like, someone like the New York Times or, or Rolling Stone... Yeah, and they do have bigger overheads. Like you know, they will be they are they are paying for for the rights to to play some of the music. Yeah, yeah, cheap. Yeah, I mean the second second reason I was going to cite was quite simply they're a lot of fun to record. You know, they really are. That's I true. Mean, and that really comes across. And I just think if you work at the Guardian and you're in the music department there, you're thinking. Oh, it'd be great fun, wouldn't it? Just to sort of, you know, once a week spend a couple of hours in the day recording a podcast, just having a chat. I mean, they're just they're just an enjoyable medium. But yeah. I wonder whether the whole whole world will therefore end up having a podcast at some point. So. I would find it hard to to believe, although I'd be willing to be convinced otherwise, that any of the reasons are particularly rational. Yeah. I don't think, well, in terms of economically rational, yeah. I don't think this is some sort of like we are making a ton of money out of sponsors. This is actually washing its face. Or this idea that if we kind of wait long enough, there'll be an inversion or inflection point whereby everything goes behind a paywall and we're going to 
fucking clean up lads mm. I think it's more to Rob's thing I think they're fun mm. to record and there are low costs involved mm. yeah. yeah yeah. I think there might maybe. be an arms race too in that maybe because surely there were still subscribers to things like well certainly to New York Times and to Rolling Stone I think maybe the first time someone moves and says I've got a podcast now everyone has to have a podcast mm-hmm. and it's a bit like a companion website mm. which is a good publishing <laughs> term a little publishing insights <laughs> joke <laughs> for you all there Great. Well, thanks very much for that. Really interesting discussion, I think, about podcasts, which I know is a bit meta, but we had been thinking about devoting a whole episode towards it, and then we thought maybe just sort of a section of one, and then the Grammys just came up and were insistent in in their claim for our attention. So we'll be back next month with a new topic. Thanks very much to Amy and David yet again, and a stimulating discussion, and see you next time.